Okay, if you would please open your Bible to Second Peter. <clears throat> We're in chapter 1 again. Second Peter chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 12 to 18. Uh, to start off, we'll go ahead and read these verses together. So Second Peter 1, beginning in verse 12, hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. The qualities are spelled out in verses 5 to 7, these Christ-like characteristics. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for this time we have, and we thank you for giving to us in Christ and his gospel all that we need to be godly, to be right with you, to be justified, and also to be sanctified, to become increasingly like Jesus. And I pray, Father, that we would be stirred up to godliness again today. We can't stir ourselves. We can't, just by the force of our own will, draw near to you in holiness. Walk with Christ. We need you to do this. We need you, by your Spirit, to stir us to these things, to rouse us from spiritual lethargy and sleep. And so I pray that for your name's sake and for our good, you would do these things according to your grace in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. I want you to, uh, as we get started, focus in on the, the word, the little word in verse 13, stir. Peter is writing to stir us up. Somewhere around 35 years before the Apostle Peter wrote this letter, he and the disciples, the other disciples, were convinced that they were going to die if Jesus didn't wake up right now. You remember this incident. They're crossing on the Sea of Galilee, that, that lake that is uh, vulnerable because of the hills surrounding and so on, how the winds work to sudden and violent storms. And this was, I think, one, a storm that they couldn't predict and a, a storm that maybe they had seen very few like it on the lake. So they're, they're crossing on the lake when this vicious storm breaks upon them and it, it so pummels the little craft that they're in that even these seasoned fishermen amongst them are convinced that their time is up. Unless Jesus wakes up, but Jesus is in the stern of the boat 
And as exhausted as he was, I think, from ministry, humanly speaking, and as unworried as he was, he was going to sleep through the whole thing, even as the boat began to take on water. And so the disciples are panic and they shake Jesus awake. This is what the text says in Luke 8.24. They went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Now you're aware that the New Testament, the original language is not English, it was Greek. So that little word for what they did to Jesus, the original Greek word that they woke him, is a rather uncommon word in the New Testament. But that word is used again here in verse 13 for what Peter wants to do to us. That is to stir us up. Convinced that he and the other disciples were going to die, Peter stirred Jesus awake. They roused him. They shouted. They, they shook him awake. Now, if you recall from our reading a moment ago, Peter is again convinced that he is going to die. And he is writing to stir us awake. Peter stood, stirred Jesus awake so that he, Peter, wouldn't die. But this time he is rousing us awake so that we won't die. So that we will live. What is so important that we need to hear to be stirred up to so that we'll live? What is What is this matter of life and death that we need to be stirred to? Peter is stirring us. This is why he writes, he is stirring us to grow in the knowledge and godliness of Jesus so that we will escape the destructive end of false teaching and enter Christ's kingdom on that last day, the day of the Lord. Peter is very urgent about this. We've been over the verses in the the previous paragraph where he says we must make every effort to this. Verse 5. And then he says in verse 10, we must be all the more diligent about growing in godliness. For it's only in this way, he says in verse, verse 10, that we confirm our calling and our election by God. That is, it is only by the work of becoming like Jesus Christ more and more, that we confirm that we belong to Him already by grace. I want you to get that. It is only by working to become more like Christ that we confirm that we belong to Him already by grace. And Peter says in verse 11, in this way, we will receive from God a rich entrance into Christ's kingdom on the last day, the day of the Lord when the kingdom comes. I I want you to believe this because it's so important for every single person to be convinced of this in their heart, that growing in godliness is a matter of life and death. That is, if we don't grow in godliness, we will prove ourselves not belonging to Christ. But if we grow in godliness, we confirm that God has chosen us as His own. So listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. 
We could quote from all over the New Testament. Let me, let me give you three passages. Paul says in Romans 8, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's a, a matter, this sanctification growing in godliness is a matter of life or death. In Hebrews it says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then Matthew chapter 5, Jesus himself says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So does this raise within you concern? I hope so. That's the intent. These stark warnings are meant to to raise within you concern for godliness. But as you must be concerned with your whole life to become more like Christ, you must also be so confident that you will become like Christ. In fact, I would even say that that confidence is first. And that's what Ryan and I have been stressing in our first few weeks of going through Second Peter. As you must be concerned to become like Christ, you must also even first have all confidence that you will become like Him. Because what, what has already been spelled out, what was uh, Ryan stressing a couple of weeks ago, he says he said that um, what God has required of you, He has provided for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this started right from the beginning of this letter. It said that we have obtained this faith in Jesus Christ. And we talked about that word obtained. I don't have to go, I don't have time to, to go in at length right now, but the word obtained has the force that it's God who did it. God is the one who gave you this faith in Jesus Christ. Then we get into verses three and four and Peter goes on to praise God for how his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And God has also given to us the promise that we will, in fact, partake in the divine nature. You get all the way through it and then down to verse 11, he says that at the end of it all, at the end of all things, God himself will give to you that rich entrance into the kingdom of heaven on the day of the Lord. That's going from the beginning through the middle to the end. God in the beginning gave you the faith. God for that middle, for the Christian life, gave you all that you need to become truly godly, more like Jesus, and at the end, He will give you that rich entrance into the kingdom. God will do it. What God requires of you, He has provided for you in the gospel. So I want you to be vitally concerned that you must grow so much so that you put in every effort to grow. But at the same time, rise up to this in all confidence. Because by the work of His power and the word of His promise, this godliness is guaranteed. So let me put it like this. Let's say that you are are trying out for a sports team. Some of you, including myself actually, will have to rewind a few years to see ourselves trying out for a sports team. Okay, but um, 
baseball. Let's go with baseball. So you get out on the baseball diamond for, you know, the series of tryouts. And you come to the last tryout. And you don't know for certain, either way, whether you're going to make the team. So you're going to work really hard and you're going to put in all effort. But you're going to have, I would think, a significant stress level when it's pretty uncertain. But how does that compare? How does that stress level compare to, say, if uh, you've got to the last tryout and the coach has already told you, don't worry. No matter how today goes, you're already on the team. Now what does that do to your stress and what does it do to your confidence? You, you want to go out for that final tryout and you want to put in every effort to prove that you, in fact, already belong but your confidence is sky high because the coach has already told you you've made it. Now, don't do everything in that analogy to to connect it one for one to the Christian life because it's not by our works of righteousness that we know we're on the team, right? So it's what I just want to stress to you is what confidence you have knowing that your place in the kingdom is secure. Now make every effort to prove it is, to confirm your calling and election by growing in the godliness that's been given to you. All that by way of intro. Let's get into these verses. Let's read 12 to, uh, let's read 12 to 15 again. So Peter in verses 5 to 7, he spelled out the qualities in which we must grow. And he has promised the richest entrance into Christ's kingdom. And now he writes, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. We could quote from every nook and cranny of the New Testament to show that growing in godliness is a matter of life or death. Anyone who spends much time around the right preaching of the Word of God should know how vitally important growing in godliness is for the Christian. We should all know this. So Peter's audience, they know it already. Peter knows that they know it. And yet he finds it necessary to make it known to them again. Why? Because it is so easy for us to drift into spiritual lethargy and slumber. It is so easy for us any day. You, you may have spent, you know, significant time in prayer this morning seeking the face of God. And yet by this evening, you're really struggling to care about the things of God. We're, our hearts are so quick to be dull and to, are so quick to, to unbelief. We so easily drift off into spiritual sleep and deny that we're sleeping. So we need to be stirred up with much reminder. It's not uncommon these days for me to, to fall asleep watching a movie. And uh, my kids get a little bit frustrated. Why are you guys asleep? You know, Shri and I are just totally out. I've I've even gone to the theater with them 
and fallen asleep. Um, but when I was a kid, I, I never would fall asleep in a movie. And I couldn't stand it when our family was, you know, we were in our family room watching a movie and my dad would drift off to sleep. It would just annoy me. Dad, you're messing out. So I, I would raise my, I'd pause the, the movie. I, I'd, I managed to get the remote somehow. Anyway, I'd pause it and I would say, Dad, wake up. He kind of like opened his eyes a little bit and in a rather annoyed voice, he'd say, Michael, I'm not sleeping. I'm just resting my eyes. <laughs> That's his go-to thing every time. I say, what are you, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. You've been making noise over there. I, I know that you're sleeping. What just happened in the movie? I'd say to him. He'd be like, uh, so-and-so died, you know? And he'd be way off. I'd, I'd say, this, there's no death in this movie. What are you even talking about? Peter knows that at a moment's notice, we can drift off to sleep spiritually and deny that we're sleeping. And that's why he stirs us up. We might just say, Peter, I'm just relaxing my eyes. I'm not sleeping. Take it easy. Peter says, I know you're sleeping. Wake up. Get on your feet. Put on that armor and get back into the fight. You have everything that you need to win, and you will. So fight hard. Peter says in verses 14 and 15 that he also knows he doesn't have a lot of time left. Jesus Christ made that clear to him. And so that puts an extra charge into the urgency behind this message. And you may remember this moment when Jesus Christ made clear to Peter how Peter was going to die. At the end of John's Gospel, last chapter, right toward the end of the book, there's this gripping conversation between Jesus and Peter. You remember at this moment, Jesus has already risen from the dead. And um, the disciples have already seen the risen Lord, but Peter is still, he doesn't have much confidence of his usefulness for gospel ministry. And so that night on the Sea of Galilee, he and some other disciples, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples say, we'll go with you. Well, I got to skip a bunch of the details of the story, but in the morning, Jesus is there on, on the beach and he has prepared the, a, a breakfast for the disciples. And while they're eating breakfast, Christ and Peter have this conversation. And three times Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter affirms that he does truly love the Lord. In fact, he gets a little grieved by the third time that Jesus is asking him so much. He says, Lord, you know that I love you. And then three times after Peter has affirmed his love, Jesus then commissions Peter, recommissions him to gospel ministry. And he keeps saying to him, so feed my flock, Peter, feed my flock. And then at the close of the exchange, Jesus says to Peter this, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John then narrates this on the end of that. He said, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow 
me. Jesus indicated with that phrase, you will stretch out your hands. I believe that he was indicating that Peter would die by crucifixion. Now Peter knows that that time is at hand. And so that puts an extra measure of urgency behind his message. There is something that the churches he loves need to know. They need to know how vitally important it is to grow in godliness. And they need to know that they have the power and the promise of God behind all of those commands to guarantee their growth. You could consider this as Peter's last testament to the churches. If we are going to enter the kingdom, on that last day, we must grow in godliness. I'm not talking about becoming citizens of the kingdom now, being transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Now, I'm talking about on the last day, when our prayers are answered and the kingdom comes. Just as we say, our Father in heaven, um, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So that's what we're talking about. If we're going to enter, we must grow in godliness. Now, I, I want to press this because it's this is so important that you have the order of these things right. These two things. You have to get the order right. I'm talking about, I like to, I try to put this simply. I want, uh, it would be great if you remember this. The difference between requirements and results. You have to get this right. Growing in godliness is not the requirement to be saved. It is the result of being saved. And it is the mandatory evidence that you are saved. So becoming like Jesus is not required to belong to Jesus. It is the mandatory evidence that you do belong to him. So all who truly belong to Christ will produce this evidence in some measure. No one will produce this evidence perfectly. So when we talk about growing in godliness, we're not talking about not struggling, not falling flat on your face, not having great, great struggle against sin every hour. It's not what we're saying. None will produce this evidence, growing in godliness, perfectly. But all will produce partially. So... This godliness, this, you could say, this saintliness varies from one degree to another from saint to saint. Holiness varies in progression and degree from saint to saint, but there will be holiness. The way that Jesus put it in his Matthew 13 uh, seed and soils parable was that those who truly belong to Him, who truly take to heart the Word of God, will produce fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. But there will be fruit. By the power of God in us, there will be fruit. Now, if you don't believe that godliness and growing in it is the mandatory evidence of your salvation, you fall into the line of the false teachers who are opposing the Apostle Peter. False teachers had infiltrated the ranks of the people of God. 
and they were denying that godliness mattered. It's not a big deal. You know, we can have, we can have a field day with sin. Because this talk about Jesus coming back in glory and power to judge, it's not happening. Somehow, these people had gained some measure of acceptance in the churches. Uh, it, it boggles the mind. It does boggle the mind, but the same thing is true today when you think about it. How we can pursue all of the idols of health and wealth that we want, and God's favor is on that. But somehow, these had gained some measure of acceptance. And so now, in verses 16 to 21, and I'm going to cover these quickly, uh, Peter is going to bring in two things in order to answer the false teachers and stir us to godliness. This is the first thing he does to answer them. He says that he saw in Christ great glory with his own eyes. Okay, so he first brings in what he saw of Christ with his own eyes, and that's verses 16 to 18. And then he's going to tie in how what he saw confirms what God says in his holy word. And that's the verses 19 to 21, and that's what Ryan is going to cover, Lord willing, next Sunday. So what he saw with his own eyes was the actual unveiling of the glory of the Son of God there on the mountain in Galilee, that moment that we call the transfiguration. That's what he saw with his own eyes, and it was a true foreshadowing of the glory that's going to be revealed in Christ on the last day when he comes. Second, the sight of his glory that Peter witnessed confirms what God's word had already said because God had promised in the prophets long before the glory and the judgment that is coming on the day of the Lord. Peter writes, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The false teachers were saying that what the apostles claimed that is, the apostles were claiming that Jesus is going to come again in great glory to judge and to hold us to account. They were saying, the false teachers were saying, that that amounts to nothing but cleverly devised myths. If the Bible, written by 40-plus penmen across multiple varied genres of literature, and this revelation unfolding over a millennium and a half. So think of that. 40 plus men writing over a millennium and a half, and yet somehow all testifying to the same thing. One salvation in God's one Son, Jesus Christ. If that is a cleverly devised myth, it is the most amazingly, most cleverly devised myth ever, and yet still deserves incredible veneration and honor. I mean, still it would be the most amazing book ever written if it was a cleverly devised myth. But Peter, now listen, but Peter who contributed to this revelation himself, who witnessed the climactic moments of it when Jesus himself comes, has came, is saying, I'm not about to die for a myth. I'm not dying for a myth. I saw the glory of Christ coming. I was with him on the holy mountain. I saw it unveiled. 
I saw the glory that had been foretold. I saw the glory that is coming again. And that's what I'm living for. That's what I will die for. So he says in verses 17 and 18, For when he received the honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, you have to love that name that he uses for God, the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, I was there. I saw it. I saw what the prophets foretold, and I saw what's coming. Jesus Christ is coming again in power and glory to judge his enemies, to save his own, and to hold all of us to account for how we have lived. One, one thing that's really fascinating here. There's a, there's a fascinating parallel between the accounts of Jesus' transfiguration in the Gospels and Peter's writing here in his second letter. And the, that fascinating parallel between the Gospels and his letter is all of this kingdom talk. Would you turn in your Bibles? I want you to see this for yourself. Turn to Matthew 16. Verse 28. And I, I'll go ahead and while you're turning there, apologize for saying I'm going to cover this quickly because quickly is, it's, you know, the preacher understands it one way and well, people who have been with me for 13 years should also understand it the same way. Okay. It's quickly quotes. Okay, so before we read this, Peter has said that in this way of growing in godliness, this is 2 Peter 1 verse 11, in this way of growing in godliness, we will receive a rich entrance into the kingdom of Christ. Okay, that's what verse 11 was. A rich entrance into the kingdom of Christ. And then he ties the glory of the kingdom on that, on that day, the transfiguration day. Um, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> he ties the glory of the kingdom on the last day to the glory he saw in Jesus when he was transfigured on the mountain. What we just read in verses 17 to 18. That is, he saw his glory unveiled. The glory cloud of light came down and took you know, the, the individuals who are on the mountain up into it, not like up in the sky into it, but took them into it, enveloped them, and they saw God speaking from heaven. He's talking about the glory. So here's how the transfiguration account goes in Matthew, beginning in verse 28 of Matthew 16. There's a, an unfortunate chapter break here, but it wasn't there originally. So it goes like this. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Then it says, And after six days Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John His brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured. just means changed. He was changed before them. And His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. 
Peter is saying to us in this letter, I saw the glory that's coming. The glory of the kingdom that's going to come. When Jesus returns, I saw this already when Jesus was transfigured. And I'm going to see it again. What is coming, I saw, I will see it again. And this is what I'm living for. And this is what I am dying for. And you must live for it too. That's the point. You must live for it too. If we're going to enter the kingdom on the last day, we must live for it. We must become like Christ. I'm not saying you earn it by your works. I'm saying you prove that you belong by growing in Christ-likeness. That's what the Bible says all over the place. And so we must be ever diligent. And we must make every effort. We must know that we will grow because by the work of God's power and the word of His promise, this growing in godliness is guaranteed. We will partake in the divine nature. And so we must make every effort to add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, we must add steadfastness. And to steadfastness, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly affection. And to brotherly affection, we must add love. And Peter says we must increase in these qualities. If we don't, we're so nearsighted that we're blind. Having, for all practical purposes, forgotten our profession of faith. So we must grow. So that's what I want to press you to. I want you to be stirred up today. Let me ask you, do you see by faith what Peter saw on the mountain of transfiguration? With the eyes of your heart, are you beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Because that's the one thing that can compel you to pursue the kingdom and to grow in godliness and say, I want Him. Forget the world. Take the world. Give me Christ. It is only by the glory of God in the Gospel of His Son, the glory that shines in Jesus' face, that we will be compelled to grow. Keep that vision ever before your eyes. The eyes of your heart. If um, if you had all the godliness today that you prayed for this week, how godly would you be right now? If right now you had all the godliness that you've been praying for this past week, how godly would you be? Really difficult question, I know, because how do you quantify godliness? And if you've been praying this past week, Lord, make me completely like Jesus, well... We know that's not going to happen in this age even as we grow toward it. My point is, are you praying for godliness? Are you praying earnestly for godliness? Fan into flame godliness by your prayers. Pray earnestly that God would every day fill you with the Spirit of His Son and you will become like Him. Keep close fellowship with God's people. And accountability. Maintain those practical safeguards that we were talking about last week to keep so much more distance between you and the temptation to sin. Keep the Word of God close at hand. 
Keep it in your heart in which we find all the great and precious promises of God for godliness and all the commands. And again, keep always the glory of Jesus before your eyes. Remind yourself of what Peter saw. That beautiful and awesome and in a way terrifying vision that we will see and admire on the last day. Keep it before your eyes. Remind yourself of the ancient glory cloud of light that came down on that mountain and of the voice that thundered from heaven. And remind yourself too of what Jesus said to his disciples after everything was still again. He told them, rise and have no fear. I want you to be more, much more important. God desires that you be vitally concerned to become more and more like Christ, his son. And yet, rise and have no fear. Keep that confidence that the word of God gives to you that you will become godly. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul prayed. And then he said, faithful is he who has called you. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's our desire to be conformed to the image of Jesus because that's what we were made for. That's what the human race lost so long ago. And there is no true salvation without it. Without being returned to the whole purpose of living. So we thank you together that what you require of us, you have provided in Jesus. I pray, Father, that every single one here would set their hearts on becoming more like Christ. Help us. You know, Father, our spiritual weakness and how quickly we go to sleep and don't even know it. So help us be all of our help. Do a new work in us and draw us close to you. Make us like your son. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.